Support for Long Form this week comes from listening. If you've ever had to rip through a huge pile of academic papers, you know how painful it can be to spend all that time staring at a piece of paper. Listening makes it really simple to convert anything you have to read into spoken words that you can enjoy on the go. Uses AI to generate realistic voices that sound like actual human beings. Plus, it comes with a powerful set of tools that allows you to do stuff like skip over non-essential text, but also take notes with one click. Your life just got a lot easier. Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hello and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer. I'm here with my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Hey, guys. Hey, you guys. I have a, um, I have a caveat for this intro, Whoa, which is a, a thing that you don't know is that almost every time we record these intros, my dog is like one foot away from me. I didn't know that. But... She's really like, uh, she's cutting logs right now. She's snoring real loud. So just I, it's a pre-apology on Reba's behalf because I feel like she's going to snore into the microphone. Okay. With that caveat in mind, I talked to Brady Dale. Uh, as a longtime cryptocurrency reporter, he uh, is currently uh, running the Axios Crypto newsletter. Uh, but that's not actually what I wanted to talk to him about. I wanted to talk to him about writing the book he just came out with, SBF. How the FTX bankruptcy unwound crypto's very bad good guy, but it wasn't even the topic of the, this book, which I am interested in, that wrapped me in, but how quickly he wrote it. This is a book about events that came to a head in November of last year. Uh, I believe he finished the book in January or February of this year, and it's coming out now. Uh, I, I can't say this definitively, but I believe it is the most rapidly uh, constructed on the news cycle book that we've ever talked about on the show. And I kind of wanted to talk to him about how you do that, why you do that, and what kind of work it produces. Because I think over the time we've been doing this show, um, there's been sort of a split between talking to people who do magazine-style reporting and book-style reporting. And I wanted to talk about the kinds of topics that are so fresh that you really have to do them very, very quickly if you want to do them at all. Going to be stale in a couple of years. There's also a Michael Lewis book on the same topic coming soon. We talked about that. And all of those things that, that come into play um, when you want to tackle a uh, sizzling hot uh, up to the minute story like this one. Book writing seems so daunting that I... I would never have like the the nerve to try it myself anyway, but those seem like incredibly difficult book writing conditions. I would think that I would take that long 
like watching YouTube videos about different book writing software before I even started. <laughs> I would be like, okay, I need the Scrivener master course before I even get cooking on this thing. Yeah, that's, a, that's like a two-month project in and of itself. Easily. Uh, we make this show in partnership with Vox. Thanks very much to them for their support. And uh, now here's Aaron with Brady Dale. Hello, welcome, Brady Dale. Hey, Aaron, great to be here. Um, okay, you have a new book out. Yes. The book is called SBF, How the FTX Bankruptcy Unwound Crypto's Very Bad Good Guy. Yes. Unsurprisingly, this book is about the collapse of uh, the FTX exchange. And when I first thought about doing this interview, I w- we've been friendly for a long time, so I, of course, wanted to have you on, but I was like, Wow, we already had the CoinDesk people uh, during the Polk Awards who sort of um, actually are characters in this story uh, that sort of kick it off. And I know Michael Lewis has got a book coming out about this. I'm like, no big deal. "Ah, Is this too much uh, FTX? But actually, when I got a copy of it, started reading it, I I found something that I think would be really interesting to talk about that we've never talked about on the show before, uh, which is what it's like to write a book really, really fast about a topic that is not yet resolved and probably won't yet be resolved when the book came out. So um, the events in this book took place in November, I want to say, of last year. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's the whole history up to then. But there'd be no book without November. There, yeah. there would be no book. If, they, if, <laughs> if this had been September, you would have been p- pitching a very, very different book. Had you had aspirations to do a crypto book before this? Oh, absolutely. And in fact, the one I had an idea for previously was a little bit about Sam. And that book is basically in this book. Uh, but also, before we say get to that, Aaron, let me just say really quickly, it's very exciting to be here. Uh, I moved to Brooklyn in 2013 and sort of stumbled into being a journalist. Uh, it wasn't really the plan, but you know, I've been doing it ever since. And uh, since I didn't go to J school... I listened to a lot of long form back in the day. And that was like, you know, that was what that was like my little J school. So it's like, it's like exciting to, it's exciting to be here. So anyway. Uh, All right. Well, before we um, zoom our way to uh, Sam Bankman Freed as he zoomed his way uh, through making and losing a lot of money, let's talk about, let's talk about how you got there. How, oh, you, sure. okay. um, you transitioned from something else to journalism in 2013. What were you doing before that? I was uh, I was an organizer that took a lot of different forms. The last place I was doing it was in Philadelphia, and that's where I had the most jobs I ever had in one place. But I did it all around the country and a lot of different causes. But I was basically a do-gooder who tried to persuade other people to get off their couches and hold signs and yell about things that were ostensibly good. So I did that for a really long time. The last place I worked before leaving that life was uh, Clean Water Action in Philadelphia. So I was doing environmental stuff. But I did all, everything from poor people to religious liberty to college students I had all, all kinds of issues what made you want to switch from that to writing well I always wanted to be a writer I want to be a writer since I was in the second grade but when I was I don't know when I was in college I just had this maybe stupid idea that I still am not sure this I don't think it probably was smart but whatever um, I had this idea that I shouldn't go straight at writing I, I should I should do something else and I had this really strong I also had this like 
very strong feeling that I had to do that organizing work for a certain amount of time. I never really liked it, but I felt really bad at the thought of quitting. And then, and then I got into my thirties and I was like, I need to actually be a writer at some point or it's never going to happen. And I also, that feeling of like, you have to keep doing this went away. It was like, you know, it was just like, okay, you've done enough, you're free. And so, um, you know, I, I, I saved some money and I just took a year off and I tried a bunch of things, including I had a podcast um, and, uh, and becoming, being a journalist is kind of what worked out. I had a couple of friends, one who was an editor at Fortune at the time, one who was an editor at Next City who were willing to give me, you know, early bylines. And one day, and I remember an editor said something to me about, in your reporting, did you find, and I was like, my reporting, uh, <laughs> yeah. Okay, I guess I'm doing that now. For people who are listening who maybe are like um like in one career and thinking about like making a change after the age of 30, like what were your experiences like um you know being a person who had experiences out in the world and had done stuff but basically starting from square A and reporting and you know having to to go through sort of all all of the basics um at a slightly older age than some people do right out of college. Yeah, it was weird. I mean, I it helped that I did not and still don't have any real obligations to anyone else so I could take a lot of risk. You know, it wasn't like really a problem. Uh, it was a weird transition for me because I had been, I mean, to a small degree, not a big degree, but I had been a newsmaker before. Uh, so I had dealt with journalists as trying to get them to cover things that I was doing for a long time and had complaints about journalists and thought they were annoying in various ways and whatever, and then became one. I mean, when I envisioned myself as a writer all my life, I'd never really envisioned myself as a journalist. It was just, I, I, I wanted to write fiction and stuff, you know, like a lot of young people. What did you learn about communications and sort of informing people about something from that job that you felt like you, you brought um, forward into the uh, current journalism you do? Cause I noticed while you're reading, while I was reading this book, um, almost every topic in this book, like needs like a, like full explainer section for yeah. a person, unless you've like previously like paid attention to this industry. Um, yeah. Like I'm curious, like what kinds of communications lessons you learned uh, in your pre-journalism time? Well, I mean, being an organizer is a lot of communicating and explaining too. I mean, usually you're explaining the same thing over and over again for a very long time. So, you know, when I left organizing, I had a talk that I could give on like natural gas drilling or fracking, you know, that I just had on lock. Like I, I, you know, I could do it anywhere at a drop of a hat. It was very good. It was very strong. I had like laughs and, you know, I, you know, was, uh, and uh, so you, I got really good at doing that kind of thing. I mean, you know, I guess not to criticize other journalists, I, but I just, I do think having done something else, I think there's this way I sometimes see in other reporters who have only ever been reporters it's easy to develop this sense that you you get the whole world because you're just always looking at it and explaining the whole world. And I think having been in this other environment for a long time, I think I have a useful kind of self-doubt that sometimes I, I see other journalists sort of leap to thinking they understand a thing more quickly than I, I think it really is any of us understand it, you know? Uh, 
I guess that's what I sort of feel like I take from my prior life. So did you like seek out a job uh, covering the crypto industry or did it seek you out? It did seek me out. What I sought out was a job covering technology. So what explains the transition is that I was doing nonprofit stuff and I didn't care about being a good person in the world anymore, but I just didn't want to be bad. And, you know, in 2010, 2011, 2012, when I was starting to think about making the transition, technology was still seen as pretty benign at that point. And I was hanging out in the Philadelphia tech scene, which, you know, exists. There's a lot of meetups and stuff. I was kind of absorbing that whole vibe, absorbing that whole fail fast, pivot, you know, take chances mentality. And I kind of thought I could imagine myself just going to work for a tech company. Um, and so that was, you know, I was like, maybe I could write tweets or, you know, do content, whatever. And so that was a thing I was kicking around and I was hanging around in that space. And then I was dating someone at the time. She wanted to move to New York and I kind of kept doing the same thing here. And then I was good friends with these guys who run this network of local news sites called Technically Media. Their biggest site is Technically Philadelphia. Um, you know, pretty interesting project that's been going for a long time. And uh, they wanted to try their hand. They, they, they specialize in sort of second tier cities. They'd have technically Baltimore, you know, technically Delaware. That's kind of like w what they found their sweet spot, but they wanted to try doing a big city. So they wanted to try doing Brooklyn. So I was their first. So then, so Chris Wink, the, um, now the CEO, uh, was just like, would you want to try just covering Brooklyn for us? And so I was like, yeah, sure. So I started doing that. And, and so it just, you know, my lurking around the tech scene sort of led me into being a tech reporter. And I really liked technology. I liked cover. I liked the space. I liked the vibe. I liked thinking about it. So it was a great thing for me to cover. And then I always have liked weird stuff too. So once I got a full-time job at the Observer, I was writing about anything weird I could find, you know, like early things on the Gartner hype cycle. And um, crypto was one of them. And it just so happened that Coindesk was starting to do well enough that they were going to expand their newsroom. And they had like four reporters at the time. And uh, they asked me to be one of the early ones in 2017. And so I went over there and, you know, the rest is history. I've been I've been full time crypto since October 2017, just in the middle of the prior boom. OK, wait. I need to I need to drill back in on one thing you said there. You look for weird things early on the Gartner hype cycle. Yeah. How do you look for these things and how do you gauge like where they are on that hype cycle? Because I think that's an interesting thing about like digging into some of these topics and taking them seriously is like some of them are like duds and some of them are going to become entire uh, verticals. What do you where do you come in on that? Well, I don't know that I'm, you know, any more gifted at guessing these things than anyone else. I sort of like the way the guys at Boost VC put it. If you know them, you know, they always say they're investing in science fiction, you know, like they're investing in making science fiction real. I think that's kind of how I thought about it. So like the other thing I really like to write about was like robots and exoskeletons, right? Just sort of things that look like something in a, you know, in a movie. Um, so, and, you know, on this point, actually, this is a thing which I think the fact that I'm older, like I'm in my 40s, um, I, not everyone sees it this way, but this is the way I see it. And I think that actually helps me that I'm in, in my 40s. You know, I'm of of the age group that graduated high school without an email. And then I got an email when I went to college. And then I got everything else that came after that. I got, you know, the internet, I got social media, I got the cloud, you know, all those things. And because I was always kind of interested in technology, I saw people make fun of every one of those things. And yet they all <laughs> became stunningly important. And so 
I feel like a lot of tech reporters still do this thing where they make fun of every new thing that comes along in the same way that we all made fun of the internet and email back in the day. And my attitude is just like, how can you do, you know, like I just, I've watched the world change completely like seven times since I graduated high school. Like, how can you just dismiss new stuff? You know? So that's, I, I just don't tend to be dismissive of new super weird things with some exceptions. I mean, like there are some things that I am pretty bearish on, um, I'm happy to be proven wrong someday, but I'm, you know, like I'm not wild about VR and stuff like that. I, I just don't, I don't super buy it, but, uh, after giving it a lot of tries and really looking at it, but I just kind of, kind of don't buy it. But yeah, that's just sort of been my attitude is just, um, weird stuff is worth a look. And then especially when a lot of smart people get into the weird stuff, um, enough smart people get into the weird stuff that people start making fun of it. It's like at that point, it's definitely worth paying attention to. Yeah, I think I more or less follow the same mental path as you. And I think what threw me off a lot maybe a decade ago was very, very quickly gravitating to the like good, bad axis. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, so once we take that this thing is sci-fi and that it has like some legs, we just have to decide immediately whether it's going to lead to sort of a utopian or a dystopian outcome. Mm -hmm. And if it's going to lead to a bad, which I think is probably the default conclusion about new, new technology is generally more bad than good, at least on, on the way in that therefore we have to decide it's like silly and it's not going to work because we don't think the world should go in sort of a, a bad direction. And I've had to sort of check myself against getting too involved in that, in the sort of like moral ethical elements too early because I've been wrong, not even just about which way I'm sort of leaning, but also about like what the moral and ethical implications of technology are. I feel this like very strongly with like AI right now where I'm like, man, just let me like play with it and make some stupid image before I have to like consider like all of, all of the terrible things that are going to come, come after that. Like allow me to have like a brief moment of exploration before like the heavy, heavy moralizing. There's that. There's also the whole, um, is the invention doing the quote unquote thing it was intended to do, which is a really important question, particularly with crypto. But a thing we see all the time in history is that inventors invent a thing because they think it'll be good for this. And then the, the world uses it a whole different way. But like, I just listened to the audiobook of Goldstein's like money, a true story of a made up thing. And it's really good. I mean, I highly recommend it to anyone. Um, he does, he gives a really great dismissal of Bitcoin in it. But but my problem with his dismissal is his basic point is new forms of money are always kind of rise up organically. It's not some guy being like, I fixed it for you that like is where new kinds of money comes from, which I think is a really great criticism. But what it misses is, and this is what I've kind of always said about things like Bitcoin is it, it only, it fails to note that like, yeah, Satoshi said it's for payments. He's just the inventor. Who cares what Satoshi said? Like the world will probably find some, I, I think it'll probably end up fitting into the world in some way that will surprise everyone and will be valuable and probably worth a lot of money. And, you know, everyone will use it eventually and no one will care, but it, will it be money? Yeah, maybe not. So what? Like, you know, but I think a lot of people get really t locked up on like a thing, you, a critique you often hear of new things is like, well, it was supposed to do this. And it's just like, who cares what it was supposed to do?
Support for Long Form This Week comes from listening. If you find yourself behind the eight ball needing to read a bunch of academic papers or journals or any kind of dense reading material, you might make your life a lot easier by checking out listening. It takes anything, articles, books, PDFs, and turns the text into spoken word that you can absorb no matter what you're doing. The app has a lifelike AI voices complete with emotion and intonation that creates a realistic and pleasant listening experience. So I had to go into the city for some meetings. I needed to review some PDFs, threw them in there, listened to them on the way. It was both pleasant and I kind of forgot that I wasn't like listening to a professionally done audiobook or something like very quickly. The voices sounded totally natural and human to me. This listening app might just transform how you consume reading material and you can give it a shot yourself risk-free. Now, normally you get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use the code longform at checkout listening. Your life just got a lot easier. Fox Creative. This is advertiser content from 26.2 Team Milk and their new docu-series, Running Sucks. Is running the worst? Yeah. Do you love it? Do you hate it? I hate it so much. <laughs> I hate it so freaking much. That you're a real runner now! I hate it. <laughs> I'm Abby Ayers, a 37-year-old mom from Utah who found herself running across the Manhattan Bridge in my first race ever. Running Sucks celebrates women who run and the running communities that carry them across the finish line. Running helped me in so many ways postpartum. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. For every person like you, I'm telling you you belong and I'm telling you you can do it. I never thought the words would leave my mouth, but yes, I'm planning on running a marathon. Like, who would have thought? Watch Running Sucks at runningsuckstheseries.com and learn more about how Team Milk is helping women runners across the country conquer their next course. So you're reporting on the cryptocurrency industry. This happens. It's one of the biggest stories ever, uh, in that space. And, you know, what makes you want to write a book and how did you think about like the timeline and project of writing a book about this? Yeah. Well, uh, so, I mean, first of all, I just always wanted to write books. I mean, since I started, became a journalist, I've been trying to find the book, you know, the first book for me to write. Um, I know it's a tough, road to hoe but it's it, it is what i've always wanted to do is like take on you know big topics and really dig into them for a long time and, and do books um i didn't initiate this book wiley came to me the, an editor at wiley bill falloon had the idea to try to do a fast book on sam to get it out before michael lewis and to um to be the first he, he thought that would be a good idea then he went looking for someone to do it and actually this this kind of relates back to coin talk actually Cointalk advertised the Tech Meme Ride Home really early on. I became a Tech Meme Ride Home listener and occasional guest uh, to talk about crypto. When the FTX thing blew up, um, Brian at Tech Meme Ride Home 
slid in my DMs and was like, what's the deal here? And I gave him a funny, pithy summary of what we understood, like, you know, on day two of the whole thing. And he was like, can I read this on the air? This is funny. And I was like, yeah, of course. So he read it on the air. He quoted me. Bill heard that, was just like, would you want to do a book? And I was like, yes. Uh, and he was like, we got to get done by the end of the year. And you do that. And I was like, no idea. Um, but uh, I did, you know. Uh, well, okay. So end of the year, that's like a month, six weeks? Yeah, like six weeks. It was like six weeks. Yeah. Okay. So for people listening at home, that's um, compressed by uh, 10 to 100 fold uh, how long it would normally take to write a book. Right. Um, did you even think that was like possible? I did. Um within the bounds of the book that I wrote, right? Like, so what it really does is it puts together the whole history of Sam and FTX that we know. And then also it really tries to explain these things in a lot of detail, hopefully for people who don't understand them. I don't know how well that stuff is landing. Um, I tried to, you know, do it in understandable ways. I tried to make it funny as I went. Um, But in terms of feasibility, I mean, I, you know, I am a fast writer. I've always been fast. Um, I just sat down and did the math on it. And I was like, if I can write 1500 words a day, you know, I can write this book and I can do that. Like, you know, uh, so the chapters are really short. So I would just kind of write a chapter a night, definitely not even close to in order. I would just kind of sit down each night and be like, what is, I had this really detailed outline that was like, and there's 47 chapters now. I think there was 60 in the original conception though a lot of them were I just looked at they're like the same thing over and over again but um but I would just kind of pick a chapter do it I was also I was thinking about it all the time so I would frequently just open a file that had and just t- write a couple paragraphs because something would hit me for that and I, I was just you know I was just bouncing around the whole thing the whole time by the end it got a lot more uh coherent it, sort of, it was a lot more linear but early on I was writing parts all over the book the other thing about the book that also gave me a little bit of a leg up is you asked earlier, did I have any idea of doing a book about Sam before? Not exactly, but I wanted, I had a proposal I had done and a proposal is a very detailed thing. You know, it's not just an idea. It's not it's just a two page idea. It was like a 70 page proposal. It was about the sushi swap, Uniswap launch. I thought that would make for a cool book for certain people. And so I had, I had all of that done. And then that, you know, is just in, I mean, that book is in this book because that was important because it, you know, for people who don't know what we're talking about, it's this very weird thing that happened in DeFi summer, but it, it was Sam's debut as a leader in the crypto world. So um, it was super relevant to this. So that was, you know, only a piece of the book that was kind of already semi done. I mean, I had to rewrite all of that, but that was some work I had done ahead of time too. Did you sort of have like a firm, like, okay, I'm not even going to be concerned about events that happen after this date, I'm going to like freeze myself. Like, how did you consider the developments of the story that were happening while you were writing the book? I, uh, yeah, I, that's a, I, I tried to make it clear to the reader that like the book is through his extradition back to the United States. And, and I tried to set it up at the start of like, this is a snapshot of how we understand the world at this time. Yeah. I, I'm very clear that like, it's it's a book through when he comes back to the United States. Like that's what it's that's the end point of the book. There will be more things learned, uh, but I'm not I'm not dealing with those. You know, one of the questions that people who are sort of parachuting into this story um, want to know is: Was the whole charity 
uh, altruism stuff bullshit. Um, and it was all like a calculated cynical thing, or did he have good intentions and then somehow went bad? And for me, I sort of reject the whole premise of that question. Cause I think the answer is like both or all of the above, or maybe humans are so good at deceiving ourselves that he didn't really know which of those camps he fell into. But that was also something that each time a new piece of information came out, it was sort of like recalibrating my sense of like how like devious versus naive some of these events were mm. in trying to like put forth Sam as a character in this book. How did you think about explaining that sort of essential question about his intentions to the reader? Oh, I mean, it's the most important question in the book. And I think I, I think I take a stance that nobody else takes. Um, and this is partly informed by the fact that I used to be a do-gooder, but I think it is 100% true that Sam wanted to do a lot of charity. And, but that doesn't, people get confused. And I say that they think, they think I'm defending him. I'm not defending him at all. I'm actually damning him worse. Um, because I think Sam wanted to impose his will on the world and Sam believed he knew better and he believed he knew so much better that he was willing to do unethical things on the way to this great good future he was going to give all of us. I think the most dangerous people in the world are the ones who think they know better. And that is, that is my claim about Sam. You know, he had a nice apartment in the Bahamas, who cares? It was a pathetically small amount of his total, you know, value in the world at that time. It, that's not a real thing. Sam got utility, to use the kind of language that comes from the kind of thinking that he had, from uh, doing great at philanthropy and being smarter than everybody else. And that's what that's what he wanted. And so it's 100%. I think all of the charity stuff was 100% real. That's, that's what he you know, got satisfaction from, but it's also hundred percent real that he did profoundly unethical things and he took risks that he shouldn't have with other people's money. And I think it's worse because he was doing it because he thought he wasn't just a hedonist. He wasn't just, you know, some finance bro, you know, he thought he was justifying it by the fact that he was so good that he was going to fix the world. Th those are the most dangerous people. Okay. So I'm glad you just expressed that entire um, very uh, eloquent thread because that was something I took from the book. And now I want to sort of zoom back. And so it's like, you know that this is sort of your take on Sam, um, but you've got to tell that in the story using actual things that happened, actual like reminiscences of people. How do you think about like threading that through the sort of like previously reported narrative of what happened at FTX. Yeah, I don't know. And uh, I guess it'll be up to the reader to say how good of a job I did of doing it. You know, I had some interactions with Sam over the course of his whole history in crypto from 2020 forward. I do some of that to sort of tease that out. I also talk in there about my own experience with effective altruism because I hung out with him for a while. I have a chapter in there about that. And I always bought that side of Sam um, and I didn't, I didn't stop buying it after the disaster happened. So yeah, I don't know. Um, one resource that was really good for me in the book is he did this really long interview with the 80,000 hours podcast where he talks about a lot of this stuff. And I quote from it heavily in the book. And 
one of the points he makes in there, which was really striking, you know, and I mean, I was kind of biased on this point too from my prior history, but that really struck me in terms of his way of seeing the world is um, he's talking about his political giving and sort of how a person with a lot of money can influence how politics is done. And he's very critical of how politics is done, you know, and, uh, and he makes these like really arrogant statements about how like most of the money that's spent on like political organizing and political activism is just largely wasted and what they do is all garbage. And to me, that was just like such a stunning statement because I was just like, man, you don't know anything. About, like, I doubt you've knocked on a single door like and you you were still like you just are willing to come out here and say that you get this stuff better than everyone else does. And for me, as someone who used to be in that world, you know, I saw this all the time and people would show up. It was their first meeting they've ever come to, and they already understood everything that was wrong about, you know, grassroots organizing and grassroots work. And that if they just would have made their argument, everyone would do it their way, and then they, everybody would win the next election. I was just like, man, it is so much more complicated than you can even begin to understand. And like, yeah, it just really that moment really spoke to me of sort of Sam's um, of of how arrogant Sam was and how much he was just willing to like impose his his supposed genius and everyone i mean i do think he was a really smart guy but i think he was smart about certain things and like a lot of smart people that made him think he was smart about everything you know and he wasn't when you were working on this book knowing that you had this extreme hard deadline was it difficult like knowing that there was some other book that was out there if you had one more month six more months if you had more time to try to work on people to get to talk to you. Like, I guess I I'm curious about ex like how you emotionally processed the compromise of doing something so fast. Uh, yeah, it was, you know, uh, for good or ill, the way my life has always gone. I knew that my first book, if I get to write more, who knows, we'll, we'll call it my first book for now. Um, I knew my first book would happen something like this because it's the way everything else has ever happened for me. I'm going to say something that sounds like it's bragging. It's it's actually completely the opposite of bragging. Um, in journalism, I have never sought a job. Every single one of them has come to me, and it's not and it's not really because I'm like so great necessarily. A couple of them have been kind of a compliment, but it's sort of more been luck. I have never had much success in seeking the jobs that I want. You know, it's like I can only get the ones that people open the door for me. Like when I've knocked on doors like I don't even get interviews you know so and I have tried to get books sold and it just hasn't really gone anywhere I've never seemed to have like the connections or whatever and so I just sort of knew that someday somebody was just going to say like have you ever thought about doing a book about this and I just needed to say yes you know <laughs> like that was like that was like the way and I was just like yeah this is tough and my first fight you know it's like it's like I'm a boxer in my first fights against Muhammad Ali you know it's like what are you going to do like it's just like I knew that's the way it was going to go. And I just had to take it and roll with it. Um, you know, it's it's not only do I wish I had more time and I could have gotten more people in. I mean, the thing that's tough about it is I kind of tried not to worry about it because, I mean, you know, the person you're talking about is Michael Lewis, right? I mean, like not only <laughs> like like the best writer and reporter out there on this kind of stuff, um, he had all this pre-disaster access that I was just never going to have. and everybody just clammed up super hard after it. Whereas he had all this access from before. And then of course he's Michael Lewis. There is this thing where, you know, people are going to be more willing to talk to him because he's this big name brand, but he also just had all this reporting that preexisted it. 
that like, you know, I knew I couldn't compete with. So um, his book is going to be much more like you're going to be able to, you know, smell the salt air above the Bahamas as, you know, he talks about Sam, you know, stressed out and frazzled at three in the morning with his hair and a blah, you know, like he'll have all that stuff and that'll be great. Um, what I tried to bank on is something that like, I have a feeling I get crypto better than he does, you know, and I have a feeling I saw parts of Sam's story that didn't probably don't even, didn't even seem relevant to him. And so that's the part I'm going to tell. Um, they're going to be wildly different books, you know, uh, and, and I just was like, I'll just double down on what I think maybe I do well. And hopefully people respond to that. Um, but it was just the kind of thing where it was just like, I knew I wasn't going to be able to pick my door, you know, like hopefully someday I get to pick my doors, but like, so thus far I haven't gotten to pick my door. And so, but you just, you just got to go through the door when it opens, you know, like, what are you going to do? So this door opens, you've got all this like built up material from covering the industry for the years while this was happening, where you've been like kind of seeing these events in real time. How did you think about structuring the book? You said you had like an outline that had like 60 parts. Mm -hmm. Was that linear? Was that thematic? It's, it's mostly linear. You know, it's funny. I had it, my, I, one of the stupid things that happened in the course of writing the book is I had this page of thank yous I was going to do, and somehow that got lost in the editing process. So it's not in there, but like I had a thank you to the guy who's been my editor the most often in my career, Zach Seward. He was both my editor at Technically Brooklyn, and then he was my editor at Coindesk for a while. He's still in the scene. Um, but, you know, he's always been quite good to me, and he's one of the handful of people I called when Wiley asked me to do this and was like, do you really think I can do it? And Zach was like, sure, of course you can do it. You know, you'll you'll start the book with like kind of an, an opening of like the moment it all falls apart and you'll kind of set that scene for everybody and and then you know you'll kinda you'll kind of back up and you'll tell the whole story from the beginning and kind of go straight through. And it kind of annoyed me that he said that because I was just like, hey, I'll decide how I'll do it. And then I was like, actually, okay. <laughs> maybe, maybe that's what I'll do. <laughs> so like so like that was kind of this, you know, Zach kind of gave that to me. And so it starts with like these three moments, these three big moments over the last few months, which I think are really important. And I go through them in reverse chronological order from like November to um, the terror collapse. And then I think the decision, the deal with the Miami heat is really important. And then I, and then after that, I go back to the beginning and it's basically linear until the very final section of the book where so many things are happening at once that I kind of break that into three separate linear threads, um, kind of politics, um, crypto stuff and uh and the crap with celebrities you know like those are sort of the three the three pieces and so those are kind of three separate linear threads in like the last you know i don't know 30 percent of the book maybe not even not quite that much so um so that's how i did it and then there's also a series of chapters that are kind of zoomed out explainers of certain concepts just peppered throughout the book at times that they seemed appropriate and i i think i do pretty good transitions from chapter to chapter and they're all it's all super short chapters um you know, I, I sort of, I did it. I, I intentionally, I like books with short chapters. So I just decided to do a book with short chapters. I think they're easier to read and they're more fun to read. So uh, those were my big structural ideas. What has it been like in the months since you froze the manuscript or, you know, basically had to turn it in uh, as new things have happened, new developments? I think I read that, like, I'm going to mess up the number, but that, like, the amount of data that was put into the court record for this case is like um, amongst the largest data sets ever considered by a court. It's like 
800,000 emails, like huge, huge amounts of financial data. I mean, it's sort of a story about how a bunch of like young people can create like a gigantic digital mess pretty quickly these days. Yeah. Uh, You know, at some level it's been kind of a relief. I have never really covered court cases much and am really finding that I, I hate dealing with the courts and like how the courts function and like how the documents work and how you sort of track things down uh, and how, how you can't just like talk to people about what's happening, you know, in the same way. So uh, it's been a little bit of a relief um, because it's just, that is, and that kind of remains a little outside of my skill set. So yeah, I mean, it's been fine. I mean, a lot of new things have been revealed I don't I don't really know that the story has changed stunningly, honestly. I mean, like, there's been a lot of interesting little details we found. Like, they owe Jimmy Buffett's restaurant a bunch of money in Barbados. Like, cool. But uh, nothing that has blown the case open from where we left it at the end of last year, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, there's details like the fact that uh, the CEO of Alameda Research was basically, like, keeping a contemporaneous journal which is in the court, which is like, whoa, there's going to be something cool in there. But it's like, but you can't read it still. Right. We just know it exists. Right. It's a lot of like, like, wow, this might be interesting. And as you said, with court reporting, like, you know, I I simply wouldn't even know when to expect that information would come out. This is like, you know, periods of years before there could be like a, a big dump of information from the court. So, um difficult if you're like waiting on that to to publish something to me it is not a good sign for sam that so many of his uh compatriots have folded so quickly but you know as i say in the start of the book like once you get a lot more facts things can look pretty surprising in ways that you never anticipated before and he does seem dead set on proving his innocence like how you can come out as completely innocent when several billions of dollars have disappeared on your watch i have no idea but uh he seems to believe that that's possible on some level so um final question and it's going to be very practical you put together this uh, axios um crypto newsletter every day which means you're i assume i'm assuming getting hit by a bunch of publicists and various people who want you to put their thing in that day's newsletter. Not totally dissimilar to when you worked at Coindesk, when you were probably also getting hit by a bunch of publicists who wanted you to basically republish their press release in your um, media establishment. What have you like developed as sort of a filter of what's worth writing about on an extremely short deadline when you can't do a bunch of due diligence or really look that deeply into any of this stuff? Well, I'm the surliest reporter out there when it comes to publicists. So I will say, I mean, a big, and this sounds like a real jerk thing to say, but I honestly think it's true. The fact that it's coming from a publicist is already a negative point for me, because especially in crypto, as you know, there's so many firms who just think if they got a little more hype, they would be the next big thing. And so to me, the fact that people are investing in publicists at all is not a great sign. Um, And so I am much more inclined to write about things that I sort of feel bubbling up in the vibes in some way. I mean, especially I think in crypto coverage, vibes are crucially important. So if I'm not feeling vibes about something, like I just don't really care. And so 
um, it, it's a pretty slow day that I pick up a press release. I, I think my rate of acceptance is probably like one of the lowest around. You know, I look for things to be kind of being talked about and sort of energy around them elsewhere. And then obviously things and then things that explode out into the public view and people don't want them to, you know, the day we're recording this, there's some drama, there's some drama happening around Binance and the SEC, you know, that's a no brainer. Um, so I guess those are the big things I choose from at Axios, you know, Axios has a very, you know, it started as a political news site and has expanded from there. Political government stuff is in its DNA. So like, there's a very strong push there for me to do anything that's relevant to like the government and regulation and whatever. So that's a bit of a filter I have just based on where I'm at now. That's not what it was like for me at Coindesk really. I mean, Coindesk cared a lot about that, but I wasn't pushed to do that there. But, um, yeah, so things bubbling out. Uh, strong sense of the vibes, uh, which, you know, is like heavily Twitter, annoyingly. I'm trying to get myself into other spaces more. Um, and uh, and then also just like stuff that I, I think I have uh, a decent sense for like, I, I still am trying to pursue the weird. I'm still trying to pursue weird stuff to a certain degree. And for me, that's largely meant in DeFi. Um, and just like explain that kind of stuff as I have time. I guess those are my big, my big viewpoints. Brady, thank you so much for this interview. Thanks for having me. And that's the long form podcast. Thanks very much to Seth Kelly for editing this episode. Thanks to Susan Peterson for doing the show notes. Thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Thanks to everyone over at Vox. Thanks to my guest, Brady Dale. We'll be back with a new show next week. Support for Long Form this week came from Listening. Listening makes it easy to convert written text to pleasant audio tracks you can take in no matter what you're doing. It offers AI voices that manage to express emotion and correctly pronounce complicated technical terms, all while sounding like actual human beings, not robots. The Listening app might just transform how you consume reading material, and you can give it a shot for yourself risk-free Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Listening. Your life just got a lot easier.